Hello and welcome to a special joint podcast between the Lancet Infectious Diseases and the Lancet. This is all to do with the upcoming HIV meeting taking place in Mexico City between August the 3rd and the 8th. Both TLID and the Lancet Weekly issues are rich in content with HIV ahead of the meeting. I'm delighted to be joined by Sally Hargreaves from the Lancet Infectious Diseases. Welcome, Sally. Let's kick off with your editorial, which is very thought-provoking. And this is looking at the concept of HIV exceptionalism. Basically, it's too much weight or too much much resources, if you like, too many resources being given to HIV compared with other diseases. Is that the thrust of it? What are the main concerns? Yes, Richard. Well, some experts have been publicly questioning in recent months, does HIV still deserve the substantial extra resources and political commitment that it still receives compared with other health? issues and and even its own UN agency, UNAIDS. We know that HIV accounts for around 4% of global deaths, yet it receives around a quarter of the international aid budget for health, leading some to caution that the discrepancies in donor responses are now too wide. Pneumonia, to take one example, kills more people globally, but doesn't benefit from such a high degree of political and donor commitment. And UNAIDS have been criticised for asking for substantially more funding in the future, 33 billion US dollars, in fact, by 2010. There are concerns in some quarters, aren't there, that the effect of HIV exceptionalism is causing a strain on health systems, particularly in um, resource-poor settings. Indeed, there, there are concerns that when donors give these massive sums of money to national governments, ring-fenced solely for HIV-AIDS programmes, we risk weakening already failing health systems. This disease-specific approach creates parallel systems for financing and employment, which, for one, disincentivizes countries that should be working towards sustainable primary health care systems. But many organisations vehemently disagree, of course, saying that the global AIDS response to date has had an ultimately positive impact on healthcare systems. As highlighted in our editorial, Médecins Sans Frontières, for one, argues that the expansion of HIV treatment has done a considerable amount to improve and strengthen, for example, national, national laboratory services. In Ethiopia, to take one example, the labs funded by donor money for HIV AIDS are now used for a wide range of diseases. So the HIV AIDS funded has contributed to overall health service strengthening. Drug supply chains and health service infrastructure in general has also benefited from HIV-AIDS funding in resource-poor countries. Parallel HIV-AIDS programmes have also substantially reduced the burden on local hospitals. In in some of the hardest-hit regions, clinicians in the past were spending most of their time dealing with HIV-AIDS patients, and now they're freed up to address other pressing healthcare needs. So where next with this debate, Sally? Medicine Sans Frontières and others are saying is, is let's stop mudslinging here and let's look at maximising the positive impact of the AIDS response to date on health systems. So take the many lessons learnt from the HIV AIDS story, which I think most would agree has been pretty remarkable, particularly in terms of civil society mobilisation around this issue and reducing drug prices and those kind of issues and apply this to more neglected diseases and work ultimately towards maximising the positive effects of HIV funding to date. Ultimately, though, I think we all need to recognise that it is a chronic underfunding of global health care that is at the core of this debate. We need now to be advocating for the international community to dramatically increase its financial contributions to global health. 
so essential, Sally, therefore, that the international donor community adopt this approach? I think what the international donor community must do better is to ensure that disease-specific funding and broader health service strengthening in the hard-hit countries are better aligned. These issues are discussed in some depth in a feature by one of our UK journalists, Kelly Morris, in a feature in the News Desk section this month. I would agree with Robert Fryatt, a coordinator of the International Health Partnership in Geneva, who she interviews, who says that what we really need now is better coordination of global health policy and funding if we're going to tackle these issues in any meaningful way. In addition, I believe at the International AIDS Conference in Mexico this month, the WHO will be launching its Positive Synergies campaign to work towards better aligning AIDS programmes with system strengthening. Also in the news desk, page 140 of the August issue of Lancet Infectious Diseases, you've got another HIV-related item, and this is looking at HIV in Ireland. What's going on here? Well, Ireland's a very interesting country at the current time for researchers. It's a country that's seen unprecedented rises in immigration in recent years, whereas historically Ireland has been a country of net emigration, it now has one of the fastest growing populations of new migrants in Europe. The feature profiles the work of the newly formed Infectious Diseases Society of Ireland and one of their special focuses is on immigrant health amongst other things. Clinicians in Ireland have noticed a doubling of the total HIV-positive cohort in the past five years in Ireland, plus an increase in TB and malaria cases among both the indigenous and immigrant population. The current resources devoted to infectious diseases in Ireland, however, at at present don't seem to match demand and clinicians are struggling to cope with the new demographical changes. I think as well one of the important concerns around HIV and migrant populations is their poor access to health services, which is highlighted in this feature. These are really UK and EU-wide concerns. Black African men in particular are especially vulnerable to late diagnosis for HIV and poor health outcomes. Also, Sally, you've got a review. This is looking at HIV in children. What do the review authors highlight here? Well, Catherine Sutcliffe and colleagues have reviewed the literature on the effectiveness of paediatric antiretroviral programmes in sub-Saharan Africa. What they report is that treatment outcomes for HIV-infected children in this region are similar to those in North America and Europe, which is very encouraging. However, what they found was that more needs to be done in terms of diagnostics and earlier identification of HIV-infected infants. Next steps, they say, are to ensure greater availability of low-cost diagnostic tests, improved access to treatment programmes, including expansion of such programmes into rural areas, and the integration of HIV treatment programmes with other healthcare services, for example, nutritional support. Is the issue of children and HIV going to be a hot area in Mexico, do you think? Yes, I think undoubtedly it will be. I think there's a sense among policymakers and researchers at the current time that we're still not reaching children. Plus, there is a need to reach out to families more broadly who really are bearing the brunt of this epidemic and not just to focus on AIDS, orphans, etc., as we've done in the past. In Mexico, the Joint Learning Initiative on Children and HIV AIDS, which is an independent, multidisciplinary network of policymakers and practitioners, will be leading a call for fundamental changes in the global approach to meeting the needs of many millions of children affected by the epidemic worldwide. They say we now need substantial changes in the design and delivery of services to meet the needs of children and families. Another review, Sally, which has garnered a bit of media attention this week, is looking at HIV from a very different perspective. This is looking among HIV among homosexual men in Pakistan. What's the context to this review? 
We get very few submissions to the journal from this area of the world, so we're, we're delighted to be publishing this important review. In Pakistan at the current time, seven times more men are reported to be infected with HIV than women, with homosexual and bisexual contact representing an important and growing mode of transmission. As the authors of this review highlight, social taboos in Pakistan make the controlling of the HIV epidemic in men who have sex with men very difficult. Under the tenets of Islam, sex outside of marriage is strictly forbidden. It is legally and socially unacceptable. So most Pakistanis, including policymakers until fairly recently, tend to believe that HIV transmission through illicit sexual activity cannot be a problem in the Muslim world. Several subpopulations seem to be a particular risk. For example, eunuchs who identify themselves as female and male sex workers. Knowledge about safe sex practices is poor among these groups, say the authors, and condoms are difficult to access. Due to social disapproval, condoms cannot be mentioned or displayed in shops or used in electronic or print media campaigns. One male sex worker that the authors interviewed, for example, cited fear of police detainment as a reason for not carrying a condom. And in terms of the key findings, Sally, how do you summarise these? Well, the authors are concerned that whilst other relatively conservative countries, such as neighbouring India and Bangladesh, have, have now begun to address HIV prevention more openly, they say in Pakistan that sociocultural and religious taboos still hamper the recognition of HIV-AIDS as a sexually transmitted disease and therefore limit the discussion on sexual health. Tackling the epidemic, they say, will mean taking on many of these challenges and this will be no easy task. They also point out some recommendations that could result in HIV policy changes in Pakistan. Do you want to just summarise those? Programmes that target men who have sex with men will need to work towards creating awareness around HIV-AIDS and to tackle some of the myths that surround sex in Pakistan. For example, that the HIV virus cannot be passed on through anal sex and to dispel some of these myths. The authors also call for greater recognition of men who have sex with men as a vulnerable group and for better recognition of the various subgroups of the Pakistani homosexual community. The authors note, however, that the, the greatest national challenge will be the integration of HIV policy into the constitution. The distribution and use of condoms, as I've mentioned before, remains difficult, and greater advocacy is ultimately needed to sensitise policymakers, politicians and religious figures in Pakistan. Many thanks, Sally. A great deal of variety of HIV content in the August issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases, the issue that is going to the HIV meeting in Mexico between August the 3rd and the 8th. I'm also joined by my colleague Pam Das from The Lancet Weekly Journal. Pam, before we discuss some of the content highlights, let's just have a little taster of the Mexico meeting that's coming up. What are your expectations? Well, it's the first time this international conference is taking place in Latin America and the Caribbean. So it's going to be a really interesting opportunity to learn more about a region which largely gets overshadowed in the global response. As you know, most of the disease burden is in Africa, which of course, quite rightly so, should get a lot of attention. But there are other huge parts of the world like this one where the burden suffering from HIV is still substantial. What about Latin America in particular? I mean, it is, as you say, it's interesting that this meeting is happening in Mexico. What do we know about 
the disease HIV uh, and its effect in Latin America and the Caribbean. Nearly two million people are estimated to be living with the disease in the region. In 2007, there were 117,000 new infections. Primarily, transmission is through unprotected sex and is concentrated in high-risk groups, which include men who have sex with men, where homophobia and the machismo culture are the main societal drivers of the epidemic. You also have sex workers and their clients. Intravenous drug users and migrants are also high-risk populations. In the Caribbean, slightly different picture, although similar as well, is that heterosexual transmission predominates, and so young people and women are particularly vulnerable. Prevalence has stabilised in several countries in the Caribbean, but in Latin America, none of the countries have had a drop in prevalence, and it's been predicted that the number of new infections will increase in the future. So to say that the region has one epidemic isn't really true at all. It's a diaspora of cultures and populations, socio-economic disparities and so each country has a unique aspect to its HIV epidemic. Unfortunately, the subject of HIV-AIDS is usually swept under the carpet. People just don't talk about it. Problems such as poverty, homophobia, gender inequality, lack of access to healthcare, and so forth, including pressure from the Catholic Church that in that region hinders prevention efforts and laws that are inadequate in the context of the epidemic. All of these things impede an effective response. What is interesting, though, is the funding the region receives for tackling HIV-AIDS. On average, in Latin America, over 90% of resources come from domestic public sources, which is extraordinary. And really, the editorial calls for the global health architecture to take notice of this region and invest into tackling the problem. Compared to Africa, Latin America has a much better infrastructure. And, you know, there's countries which have good examples of public health success, like Brazil and Mexico, where the meeting's being hosted. Both these countries have championed efforts to tackle HIV AIDS. And so this should be a real incentive to the international community. I think a major theme at the conference that transcends worldwide is stigma and discrimination. And that is one of the biggest barriers to tackling HIV and it urgently needs to be addressed. I would recommend reading the profile of Georges Savadra in the issue, a very charismatic, openly gay, HIV-infected physician who has a very moving story to tell of how he campaigned to bring about some of the progressive changes seen in Mexico. But I'm really hoping that some meaningful discussion will take place on this subject. Thanks, Pam. And just to say, we're going to hear more from Pam and her colleagues uh, from the Mexico meeting itself during the conference. That's August the 3rd to the 8th. So look out for that. Pam, turning to some of the content highlights relating to HIV, perhaps we could start with the original research. A couple of things have caught my eye. Maybe I could just kick off and you fill in the blanks. One study is looking at the effect of combination antiretroviral therapy um, and specifically survival. This is in high income settings. What has the, the effect of antiretroviral therapy been over the past decade to 12 years since it first came into being. Is this the first kind of study of its kind? It's suggesting that generally life expectancy has increased and that mortality has decreased. Mm, that's right. This, this study is good news. Combined antiretroviral therapy has revolutionised HIV treatment in the developed world and has turned having HIV from a death sentence to a chronic disease where patients can contemplate living a fairly normal life. This study comprises a large cohort from the developed world, Europe and North America, and uses a model that shows that in the era of combination antiretroviral therapy, life expectancy of HIV-infected individuals has increased by 13 years. And this has been accompanied by a drop 
infant mortality of nearly 40%. So to put that in basic terms, an HIV positive person who starts therapy at age 20 will only on average live another 43 years to age 63, while a 20 year old HIV negative person in a high income country can expect to live to around 80 years. That's a difference of nearly 20 years. The normal lifespan does decrease quite a lot, but it's clear that if you start combined antiretroviral therapy early, you have a better chance of a longer lifespan. Thanks, Pam. In contrast to that, an important article which is coming from low-income regions uh, such as Ethiopia, India, Uganda, and this is to do with protecting infants who are being breastfed by mothers who are HIV positive. Can you just remind us, because it can be confusing, what are the recommendations from WHO and the like about what should be done in terms of breastfeeding where the mother is HIV positive? Well, WHO and UNICEF recommend that infants born to HIV-infected mothers who do not have access to safe, acceptable and sustainable replacement feeding should be exclusively breastfed for at least six months and that a single dose of nevarapine, which is an antiretroviral or a short course of a nevarapine combination, if you give that prophylactically peripartum this can reduce mother to child transmission but it's been shown that its effect doesn't usually extend much beyond four to six weeks in breastfeeding populations. So this week's study is based on randomized trials done in Uganda and Ethiopia and India as you said. So what these investigators found was that among breastfeeding infants who were HIV uninfected at birth that an extended use of oral nevarapine didn't significantly reduce the risk of infection with HIV at six months compared with a single dose. But by contrast, the risk of infection with HIV was reduced at six weeks of age in those infants who received extended dose nevarapine. But this was not the primary endpoint of the study. So this, taken together with the recent PEPI trial that showed extending prophylaxis with nevarapine from one week to 14 weeks of life significantly reduces HIV infection in infants born to HIV-positive breastfeeding mothers. It does suggest overall that a longer course of nevarapine might be more effective, especially as it's safe and well-tolerated in low-resource settings. Of course, the question of whether infants should receive antiretroviral prophylaxis for the entire duration of breastfeeding still needs to be assessed. Finally, Pam, just quickly, if you would, on the research article, and this is about uh, partners where one is not infected with HIV, the other part of the partnership is, but they're currently receiving antiretroviral therapy. This throws up some quite interesting findings, doesn't it? Yes, I'm sure this study will further fuel the debate which began in early 2008 when a statement from the Swiss Federal Commission for HIV AIDS stated that people with HIV receiving effective antiretroviral treatment cannot transmit HIV to their HIV negative partners through sexual contact. So if the HIV positive partner has an undetectable level of HIV virus in their blood, which is less than 40 copies per mil, and no other genital infections, then that person cannot transmit HIV through sexual contact. So that's what was said earlier this year. That's right. Essentially, this uh, statement suggested that condom use then is not essential. So you can imagine what, uh, what a furor that started up. Okay, but what this study found was... This study refutes this statement and uses and looks at the effect on a population level. It uses a simple mathematical model to estimate the cumulative risk 
of HIV transmission from effectively treated HIV-infected patients over a long period. And what they show is that although the risk of HIV transmission from people on infective therapy is low, it's not zero. And furthermore, they show that in men who have sex with men, the transmission risk is high over repeated exposures. The authors believe, based on their data, that the Swiss statement is not a sensible public health message because its logical outcome would be the abandonment of condoms by people with effectively treated HIV infection. As a population strategy, 